Good morning. Good to see you. True story of some prisoners of war in World War II who were building a, they were building a railroad, helping build a railroad. And they, um, again, prisoners of war, and there was, a, there was a sort of materials count at the end of the day, as there was every day, and there was a shovel that was missing among the prisoners of war. The, the, guard, the guard at the end of the day did a, did a count, and there was a shovel missing. And so he g- was furious, and he demanded to know who's, which men, which men in the pr- of among the prisoners who were, who were building the railroad stole the shovel. And nobody stepped up. A long time went by. And he just got more and more mad, the guard did. And so he said, okay, I'm going to start killing. I'm just sc- going to start indiscriminately killing. I'll kill all of you if I have to. And some more time went by. And the nerves, of course, you could feel, you could feel the, the nervousness among the men. And finally, before the, man, the guard started killing men in, indiscriminately, somebody stood up and said, I took the shovel. And the guard killed that man. Um, later, when they got back to camp, they did a, an inventory, and they recounted. And there, there was just a miscount that the shovel had not been missing. And so that man sacrificed his life to save, to save many. True story. Um, that is the big idea here in this really consummate passage about intercession, about going in between sinners and a righteous God and begging God for their lives, praying fervently, as we see Abraham do uh, for Sodom and Gomorrah here, for God to save. Um, and, here's the, and here's the big idea in this text here that's really on intercession. The righteous effect or bring about deliverance for the entire community. And we see Abraham do that here, okay, or try to do that, right? The, ri- the righteous effect deliverance for the entire community. So three points this morning. I might sneak in just a little sub four, but Abraham's intercession, Christ's intercession, our intercession. So we're going to start with Abraham's intercession. We're going to move to Christ's intercession, of which Abraham is the picture, and then we'll, we'll finish with our intercession. How is that a picture for how God calls us to intercede? So first, let's start with Abraham's intercession here. Um, why is this episode here? Well, Abraham has just been told that he will have the child of promise within a year, right? As Chase preached last week, God has finally in this narrative over 25 years knew not. He stopped there. He's called him out of Ur. He's brought him to a place that he knew not. He stopped there in the land of Canaan, and he said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great people, and every blessing to every family on planet Earth is going to come through you. Abraham's still not sure. And finally, last week, we see the text where he tells Abraham, when Abraham is almost 100 years old, within a year, you're going to have a child. Not through Hagar, not through some young woman, through your wife, who's way past childbearing, and she's barren to boot. So twice, she's doubly not able to have kids. I'm going to give her, through you, a child that's through him, we know, will come Messiah, which is how God's promise will be fulfilled of blessing every family on planet Earth. Every family that will be blessed, I should say, right? Not every family without exception, but every family that will receive blessing will receive it through this promised child. So that's just happened. God has just told him within a year that's going to happen. I'm going to give you a child. It's going to be a total miracle. Not through your work. It's going to be my work alone. It's a picture of the gospel. So this child will be a conduit uh, of blessing to the nation. So the very next event is this event that Nathaniel just read. 
of Abram's intercession for the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, where God comes to tell Abraham he's going to destroy the nations because of their wickedness. So how will Abraham respond is the question. Will he be like, uh, will he stand aside and just let God give the people of Sodom what they deserve? Or will he stand between God and the nations and as such, as an intercessor, be a blessing to those nations? And what we see is he does the latter. He chooses to stand between God and the nations who don't deserve God's mercy, right, and to intercede for them. Abraham's intercession for the nations, for wicked people who are not God-fearing and who deserve God's just wrath, is the first thing that he does after being told that he will have this child through whom God's going to bless the nations, okay? Um, so we also see in verse 19 that Abraham is different. It says that he is keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Abraham's different. But if you look at verse 19 too, he's different. Why? He's different because God has called him out of Ur. He's called him out of worship of a false god. The, the moon god Nana was worshipped where Abram was from. He was a pagan. He had lost touch with the true God, and God came and he called him to himself. It's through grace that Abram is righteous and just. It's through the work of God and through the mercy of God, right? So the blessing from God to Abram and through him is a gift. It's unearned. So let's dig into Abram's actual prayer to figure out how does he pray for the nations and how can we pray for the nations before we move to Jesus expressly. So in verse 22, it says that Abram, Abraham stood before the Lord. And in verse 23, it says that he drew near. So when we pray, we come into God's presence through the person and the work of Jesus Christ alone. We come in, Jesus brings us by the power of the Spirit through faith into the very presence of God who becomes our Father through the only Son, Jesus Christ. Um, look at this, though. I, as we really dig in, it, I was absolutely fascinated with this walk that Abram takes down towards Sodom as God is going to see their wickedness and, and levy just retribution or not, right? We don't know. So, it's this conversation, this, this pleading that Abraham has, and it's fascinating. It tells us so much about how we need to intercede. He, first of all, he engages his reason. He uses, he's very reasonable. In verse 23, he says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's what he says in verse 23 to God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is saying to God, you are just. Justice doesn't just lump together the good and the bad. Justice discriminates. We, we all know justice discriminates. And, and Abram is telling God this, what he already knows, right? He's engaging his reasoning. He's saying, you're a just God, so please be a God who discriminates here. He's clever. So he's reasonable in his prayers. He's clever in his prayers. He's clever with his approach. It's something I'd never noticed. In verse 28, after he concedes, after, excuse me, after God concedes that he will not destroy Sodom if 50 righteous live there, Abraham responds, not as I had it in my mind. I had it in my mind that he goes, okay, you said you won't destroy Sodom if there are 50. What about if there are 45? And he starts scaling down by five, right? That's what I kind of had in my head just from knowing this passage. That's not what he says. Look at the text. If you have your Bible open, just keep it open and look with me at these verses. Um, I had it in my mind, what if there are 45 instead of 50? No. He says this. He says what? 
Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? Do you hear that cleverness? Notice how he puts it. Not will you destroy the whole city. Um, he, he doesn't, he's, he's asking for God to go down five. He's asking, hey, if there are 45 wicked in the city, will you still destroy it? But he actually puts the focus on five. Um, it's actually 45, though, that he's talking about, but he phrases it by accentuating the five people. So in this way, he's working God down from 50 to 45. It's absolutely wonderful. He's being clever with the Lord. Not deceptive, but he's working God down. I would never dare to be this clever with God. But what we're learning with Abraham as an example of an intercessor, as someone who's praying and pleading for God to have mercy, is that we should be. Um, God is teaching through his word. He's teaching us how to pray through Abraham, our patriarch. Um, kids barter and cajole and argue and reason and whine with their parents. Anyone that has kids or grandkids, or even if you don't, you've seen it happen in these precincts. Um, you know this. But when we do that, God tells us to come in Jesus' name as his children. We have the rights of Christ. Either we have no rights with God or we are encased in Christ with the full rights of Jesus Christ. And so to come to, come to God as his full children, fully adopted in Jesus, with full rights is to take God at his word. It's to honor God. So to pray like this and to come boldly and reasonably and cleverly to God as we pray like this, it's to honor God because it's taking him at his word, if indeed we're in Christ. If we're not in Christ, we have no right to stand before God and let us flee. Let us flee to Jesus, right? Um, let's act this way because we've been told that we are fully um, God's children in Jesus Christ. So when my kids want dessert, um, they, they pull out all the stops, especially like the more secure a kid is in your love for them, the more they are going to press, the more they're going to use tricks, the more they're going to reason with you and be clever and use every argument and, and whatever, do a dance, whatever they got to do. Now, I'm not talking about whining or not being able to accept no. Okay, that's those things, no whining. You need to be able to, when, you know, there's a tone of voice where you lower your, you lower your register and you're like, I said no. You know, <laughs> the kids need, at that point, they need to stop. But I am talking about pressing and pressing because they know they are fully loved children. And asking cleverly and persistently for ice cream isn't going to cause, it, it, it isn't going to make them lose their child, their, their status as children. And because they're loved, they, can, they know they can burst in and press in and ask and ask and ask. That is the picture we have with Abraham here. And that's, the, that's how God wants us to approach him in Christ. So in verse 25, Abraham does what he did, uh, does what he did in verse 23. He leans on the fact that God is just. So let's, let's look at some other characteristics here. I was fascinated. He says, far be it from you to treat the wicked and the just the same. Right? Just like we just talked about. You were just, so you would never do this. So, so again, like, like, I'm, like I mentioned, God is, Abram is saying, hey, God, you're just. You're not going to treat everybody the same. You're not going to treat the wicked. You're not going to lump the wicked and the just together. And yet, notice this. I brought that up again because there's, there's a variation. In verse 24, Abraham does not ask that God would spare the righteous and kill the wicked. You kind of think that. Well, I would sort of think that, like, hey, spare the righteous. Go ahead and do away with the wicked. It's not what he says. Instead, he asks that God would spare, here it is, we're starting to get into the heart of this text, 
He asked that God would spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. You see? He says, hey, remember how we talked about he's, if, in verse 28, if there are five righteous, he's working them down from 50 to 45. If there are five, you've already said you'd, if there are 50 righteous, what about if they're, for the sake of five? If there, if there are five more righteous, will you spare the entire city? So he's focusing in on mercy to those who deserve judgment for the sake of those who are righteous. Um, his prayer is not for justice, but for mercy. In other words, Abraham begins by pleading with God based on his justice, but he moves to pleading with God based on God's mercy. Abraham knows that God is just and merciful, and he pleads with him based on these character traits, traits which seem at odds with each other. So let me, let me just, let's, get, let's talk through this. We know that justice and mercy seem to be at odds with each other. Let's give some examples. If you're just, you give someone what they deserve. That's what justice is. So if a thief steals a $500, $500 Yeti cooler and a $300 fishing rod, I'm thinking Academy, from Academy, because there's an Academy across the street from my house. If he steals $800 worth of merch from the Academy and he's caught, then justice means he's sentenced to pay back the fine, maybe with interest, plus community service, maybe a, a jail stint. I don't, I don't know. I'm not a judge. But a just judge is going to at least make the payback happen and then some probably, right? If you're merciful, you don't give someone the punishment that they do deserve that they've earned through their behavior. So the merciful judge, in this case, would waive the fine and the prison sentence and let the thief go. He doesn't give the thief what the thief deserves. Now, God is both just and merciful. We know this almost more than we know anything else, not just from this text, but there's a consummate text in Exodus chapter 34 where God reveals who he is to Moses. And he shows right off the bat that I'm full of, I'm full of compassion, and I'm full of mercy. I don't give people what they deserve. But he also says, I will not let the wicked go unpunished, right? So it's this, it's like, how do both exist? God is both just and he's merciful. How? How can you be both? In the Old Testament, I'm going to be honest, it's never 100% clear. It always remains a little hazy. But we have, we have some examples, a lot of examples some words and some actions that God puts into uh, the life of his people to show them how he can be both just and merciful. Nathaniel, actually, in God's providence, mentioned one of them when he was prefacing the, uh, the passing of the peace, and he, he mentioned the sacrifices. And the sacrifices are one of the clear ways that God institutes this in the life of his people. And like Nathaniel said, when you're reading through the Bible, you get to Leviticus, the whole back half of Exodus is about the temple and the laws. And the entire book of, Ex of Leviticus, which follows Exodus. So Genesis, first book, Exodus, next book, Leviticus. The entire book's about the priests, the sacrificial system, the blood that has to be shed for us to, become, to be able to approach God. It's this amazing amount of space. And in the Hebrew narrative, space means importance. If a lot of space is given to something, they didn't have underliners, they didn't have highlights, they didn't have italics. It's a way of saying super important. So Nathaniel was saying, rightly, man, the biblical authors give a ton of space to how important this is. And what, what the sacrificial system shows us is God's mercy. But it also shows us his justice, right? Because what happens? I'm able to approach God. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm wicked. All of us are. We can't stand before God on our own merits. How do we approach God? Through the sacrificial system. I need some callbacks here. Okay, something has to be killed. Not just something. 
Nathaniel and I were both reading through the same, that's part of the benefit of like, you don't have to do this, but that's one, one of the reasons in January I said, hey, consider reading through the Bible with this thing, because we're, we're reading through it in the same, we're right there all year long in the same place in the Bible, so I'm reading through the same bits of Leviticus, Nathaniel is more or less, might be a day or two behind or ahead, but I'm in my quiet time this morning reading through, especially the bits where God's focusing on the, the not just offer any sacrifice, the sacrifice can have no blemish. In fact, nobody with a blemish can even come into the, the inner presence of the Lord, cannot offer anything, cannot even come to the altar. Not because God is prejudiced against them, but because it's a picture of how you can't have any sin. If you're going to be an offering for the sinful, you can have no sin yourself. Something without sin that doesn't deserve to die, dies in the place of those who do deserve to die. Because death is required for our sin, so that we who do deserve to die in God's presence can go because something else has taken the hit in our place. You see how God's justice, he demands because of our sin, it must be paid for. He can't just let it go. But he is able to show us mercy through a substitutionary sacrifice. You see how that works? So that's a, one of the clearer pictures in the Old Testament. Um, and it's a hint of the intercession of Christ, which we will get to next. So also Abraham knows that he has no right to approach God in, in, in his own standing. And so you see humility is shot throughout his, his talk with God here, right? So he's very humble. What would you say, Gene? That's right. He's interceding. He's interceding for the Sodom, but he's even standing humbly before the Lord himself, right? He's also tenacious, kind of like we've talked about, like a kid. Um, I love that he doesn't walk away after verse 26. If God, if, I had, if that had been me, I don't even know that I would have tried to bargain with God. I may have, may have been just like, hey, just, you can have Sodom. Just do whatever you, they need, you need to, to do. I hope that wouldn't have been that way. But even after God says, okay, and Abraham may have been like, whoa. He's like, okay, if there are 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the entire city. Again, the righteous, the righteous effect deliverance for entire communities. Okay, that's the main message of this text. Um, I might have walked away and been like, sweet, good doing business with you. Just kidding. Thanks for your mercy, Lord. I'm glad that we had this talk. I'm out. No, Abraham doesn't peel off. Um, after God says, if, if in Sodom there are a mere 50 righteous, I'll spare the entire city, he doesn't peel off, right? He keeps going. It's almost embarrassing. It's like you're kind of cringing like, whoa, are you going to keep doing this, Abraham? He does. John Levinson, a commentator, says, Abraham speaks with great deference and scrupulously avoids chutzpah, which is a good Yiddish word that means like cheek. He's not cheeky with God. He's deeply reverential, but he's also tenacious, and he's humble. Abraham realizes who he's speaking to, uh, who God is, his maker, and the maker of all things. Behold, he says, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. He knows he's speaking to the God of all things, the God who made him in all things. But Abraham also understands who he is. He says, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, right? So he's not only here acknowledging the fact that you made man from dust and I come from the earth. I'm not immortal or eternal like you, but also I think he's embedded into that is the fact that because of our sin, where do we go after when we die? We go into the dust. We become dust. And so he's packing into that acknowledgement the fact that not only am I a finite creature made by you, I'm also sinful. And I'm dying as empirical evidence of the fact that I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve to stand before you. It's all, it's all by your mercy and by your grace. So let us, uh, let's just extract this let us pray with humility, respect, and tenacity. 
I think of Hannah as an example in the Old Testament where she goes before God. She doesn't have a child. This is a little bit later on in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And she prays for a child so intensely. She's pouring out her guts before God. So much so that Eli, the priest, comes up on her. And what does he think when he hears her? You're coming in. He thinks she's drunk. He thinks she's intoxicated. Have you been drinking? Have you been, you're coming into the presence of the Lord drunk? And she goes, no, no, no. I'm just so overwrought. And I'm being so honest before the Lord. Sometimes I can think like, oh, the Lord, he already knows. That's the opposite of what we see with Hannah. It's the opposite of what we see with Abraham. They're pouring out their souls before the Lord, and the Lord answers her prayer. So I think, actually, as a Presbyterian, I'm, I'm learning something here. I'm growing up, growing up Presbyterian. We pray with utmost reserve, even coolly and coldly sometimes. And I'm not, hey, I'm not casting aspersions. I'm so thankful that for uh, you know, the tradition that I came from. But we, every tradition has its drawbacks. We need one another, right? The body needs each other. I think when we, cold, when we come to God coldly with reserve, I'm not saying respect. When we come to God coldly with reserve in our prayers, we are disrespecting him because we're not coming as his children, and that's what we are. That's what we are, right? Um, notice in verse 30, two things happen. Abraham employs a bit of courtesy and condescension. He says, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. He's about to ask for a third adjustment. He has twice without apology, but this time he senses that he may be pushing the envelope too much. So in wisdom, he basically apologizes, admitting that he knows he may be going too far. Now he does something else. He jumps from a drop in five righteous, which he's done twice, from 50 to 45 and from 45 to 40. Now he jumps. Now what does he do? He doesn't go down to 35. He's like, okay, I, I see a pattern here. I'm just going to ask for more. He asks for double. He goes from 40 to 30. He doubles his request. In praying to God, in pleading with God, which is what prayer is, Abraham is getting what? Bolder. He's getting bolder. Now, kids do this. Again, I keep going back to kids because, look, we are children of God in Christ, right? It's the only way we, be, we, we are re-admitted re, uh, into God's family is through his child, Jesus, through faith in him. So kids do this, and we should too. God can cut us off at any moment, but let us make him. Okay, let us make him cut us off. Let us make him cut us off. Most of the time, I don't engage God long enough or desperate enough to hear, like, that's enough. Let's, let's push it until, I mean, God can't be coerced. You know that? I feel like as a Presbyterian growing up, like, God, I'm twisting God's arm. He's God. He's the Almighty. You can't twist God's arm. If he doesn't want to do something, he won't. But I think so much of the time, he doesn't do something because I'm not digging in enough. I'm not pressing in enough. I'm not asking enough. What does God, Jesus say? I mean, he says in the Gospels, like, beg, plead, keep coming after God, persist in your prayer, rattle the gates until the judge wakes up and gives you the piece of bread you're looking for to feed your neighbor, right? That's, he goes, that's how I want you to pray. And that's what we see here with Abraham. Um, I think of Jesus in Gethsemane, where he, guys, he's God. And from the beginning of before time began, he decided in the councils of the Trinity with the Father that he was going to give his life to save us, and that indeed it would be the only way for him to save sinners, for us to be saved, is for him to be that perfect sacrifice that all the sacrifices point to, because guess what? No animal sacrifice ever took away a single sin. They all point to Jesus, who actually takes away sin, who actually perfected us for all time at the cross, and actually sanctifies us, right? Um, and so... In Gethsemane, though, having known all that, what does Jesus do? 
he goes to his dad, he hits his knees, and he, and he puts his face on the ground, and he begs, and he's like, if there's another way, Father, look, if there's, I know, I know we've, I know we decided on this since before time began, but if there's another way, let's do that. Now, the father says no, perhaps through his silence, I don't know, and Jesus submits himself to that, he says, I trust you, no matter what, Lord, if there's another way, let's do that, but Father, not my will, but yours be done, but he goes for it. He goes for it. Sucks that he's sweating blood. So let's pray boldly. How do we do that? Just a few ways. Scripture-fed and spirit-led prayer. Use the Psalms as a guide. The Psalms are great. A lot of times I think if I pray, I have to come up with all the words myself. No, go to the Psalms. The Psalms plead and beg for God. Sometimes they're like, where are you? Are you sleeping? Come on. I mean, they're bold, like Abraham. I mean, borrow the boldness from the Psalms, from the writers of Scripture. Pray the prayers of Abraham. Or pray like Abraham. That's what the sermon's about. Pray. It's not just about that. We're going to get to Jesus. Pray the prayers of Moses to God. He was bold with the Lord. The prayers of David, of Daniel. The prayers in the book of Acts are a great example of how to pray and even praise them to God. Christ has made us children of the Father. Pray like a kid to your dad who loves you perfectly and has all power. Also, I'm gonna, I need to work on everything I'm saying more than anyone here, guaranteed. But write, I need to work on writing my prayers down. They say write it clear. Sometimes writing, and you can go back. If you write it down, you can go back and go, Okay, I'm still banking on this. I'm praying this again. And you go, oh, God answered this. And it, you can write it clear. A lot of times I think I know in my head what I want to say or what I'm saying, but I don't. I realize once I write it down, like it's fuzzy. Write it clear. Write down your prayers to the Lord. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. Um, okay, I'm going to skip this bit about some conjectures about what if Abraham. The fact is he walks away. He, he, he focuses on what if there are five left, but what number does he stop at? Ten. I just, I just wonder, along with others, I'm sure, but what if he kept going down to five? What about if he kept going to one? What about zero? Why not? You know, I, I'm, maybe God peeled off at that point, and the text seems to indicate maybe he did, but what happens next week, which we'll look at, is that, of course, d- God doesn't spare Sodom, and uh, I, don't, I don't know if Lot and his family, I, we're told in second, almost amazingly in Second Peter Two seven that Lot was righteous was that you know was that um before or after he got drunk and and got both of his daughters unknowingly apparently pregnant um it's it's kind of an amazing verse Second Peter two seven there righteous Lot but is is right is Lot righteous alone or his is his, are any of his family righteous his wife turns to salt because she looks back his sons in law don't seem to be and his daughters certainly so it's you know if if Abram had worked down to five would it have been enough I I don't know um but. This is, I think, maybe the most important, this is the most important observation about Abram's intercession. The Lord responds in verse 26, right? Like we've said, he says, I will spare the entire city for the sake of the righteous few. The righteous save lives. The righteous are a blessing to those around them. In the words of John Levinson, again, to repeat it, the righteous effect deliverance for the entire community. Let me read a couple of Proverbs to you to that effect. Proverbs 11, 11 says, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. So the, so the upright lift up an entire city, right, with their, with their lives, with their intercession. They care about every part of the city. They bring blessings to every part of the city. Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous increase, the people, what? They rejoice. They're glad. But when the wicked rule, conversely, the people groan. 
That's because the righteous, when they are blessed of the Lord, that blessing goes out to the community and affects the community. And when the boats of the righteous rise, all boats rise. When the wicked rise, they step on people beneath them. They make life worse for people beneath them. When the righteous are blessed, they share that blessing. And intercession is the main way that we begin to share that blessing and continue to share that blessing with, with those around us. Um, so the wicked, conversely, are a curse to those around them. But what we're seeing here is God's bl- promise to Abram that all the blessing to every nation and family on earth that will come through him play out through his prayers. That's the thing. We're, he's just told he's going to have this son through whom the blessing to the nations is going to come. The first thing we see him do, the first thing we see him do before he has this son, the very next thing after he said, within a year you're going to have this son with your wife, is he prays, he intercedes for the wicked. Our prayers, friends, our prayers are often the pipeline through which God's blessing to those around us will flow. We know he wants to bless them. He died to save them. Our prayers are a major way the blessing of his life, death, and resurrection for them will come to them. Our prayers are often the pipeline through which God's blessing to those around us will flow. Now, before I get to Christ's intercession, and then briefly ours, let me just say, just in reflecting on, let me just go to verses 20 and 21, which we've already read and talked about some, but in Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21, um, God says, he says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is very great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Right? Um, and the fact is that we all, and you can see this in the life of Abraham, and we've already talked about it some, but we all stand before God. He, the fact is, those verses show us what we already know, which is that God sees, he sees all wickedness and evil. Everything, even the stuff in our hearts that we press down for not even ourselves to know, he sees straight to the heart and he knows every sin committed and every sin not committed, the things that we should do that we don't, he sees those. He sees everything. And so um, the fact that he sees all our sin and will punish it perfectly reminds us that even the one interceding Abraham stands guilty in and of himself before God. He's a sinner. We are sinners. Just, just to sort of, um, like Paul says in Romans 3, uh, he says, and he's taking from a psalm, he says, all have sinned and fallen. Well, that's all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is Romans 3.23. He says there's no one, earlier in the chapter, Romans 3.9, there is no one who doesn't sin. There is no one righteous, not one. All have become corrupt. And then later, the wages of sin is death. And just thinking about this in particular, in my own sin before God, and the fact that we all stand in our own performance, in our own, th- the thoughts of our heart and of our minds and of our, what we've done and not done, we stand guilty before God. I was just thinking about the, I think it was because I was reading through this, the bit of the, of the Bible, but just the fact that where, where God says in Leviticus, is it 1918, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. Now, we all know, we've heard that if we spent any time in the word, um, because Jesus says, he says, he's quizzed a number of times by the legal scholars, and, and they say, hey, what's the most important command, and what does Jesus say? What's the most important command out of all the 613? Love the Lord your God. With, that's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are all the time. That's what we're made for. But then he says, the second is like it, and that's from Leviticus 19.18. The second is like it because we're made in God's image. And when we love other people, we're actually loving God. And when we hate other people that he's made his image, 
or hating God. So he says, he says the second is like it. He says to uh, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. And when I, um, when I read that and when I thought about it with regard to this text, two things just hit me like, like a bolt out of the blue. The force and sweep, number one, of this command, love your neighbor, here's the two words that are devastating, as yourself. And the second is the constancy with which I flagrantly break this command. The fact is I just don't ever, I don't ever keep it. And it's the second most important commandment in the Bible where, because it's the as yourself bit. How much time and energy and care do I take loving myself? So much, so much. I normally don't even speak to my neighbors. I'm saying normally, I speak to my neighbors, but as a rule, for the most part, I typically go inside and I'm taking care of myself and I go to work and I'm taking care of myself and I'm taking care of my family. Um, but I, I don't take food to them often. I don't inquire into their needs. I rarely pray for them. I don't really care about their kids. They mo- mainly just annoy me. And this is the second greatest commandment. I'm not loving my neighbor, any of them, as myself. Do you see what's happening? I'm just taking one command. And it's one of the most important. And we are all, friends, flagrant lawbreakers, along with Abraham, which is why Abram is a picture of the greater than Abram, of Jesus and his intercession. We're told in Romans 8.34 that Christ intercedes even now for those who are in him, who are in him by faith. He is constantly at the right hand of power of God the Father Almighty interceding for us. How, here's the question, right, coming back to it. How is God able to respond to the guilty with both justice and mercy? We talked about the judge who is just and the judge who is merciful, but how can God be both? And the way that he can be both is that God, the just judge, comes and steps between us, right? Steps between us and himself by by taking the punishment that we deserve himself through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Um, Romans 3.26, Paul says, this was also... He says, it says that God the Father put forward his son at the fullness, in the fullness of time to bear all of his wrath, not against his own son's sin. His son didn't have any sin. He was without blemish against our sin. He put him forward to bear his, his wrath, his just wrath against every sin we've committed, right? Um, and then Paul says, this was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness. So Jesus didn't deserve any punishment, and he stepped in between us and a just God, and he took that punishment in our place so that, so that God can both be just by punishing your sin in Christ, and he can show you mercy by punishing Jesus instead of you and instead of me and instead of any sinner who comes to him. So he can be both just, it all goes on Christ, and merciful, but only for those who look to Christ and who flee to Christ and who trust in Christ. For those who don't, as Richard Sibbs the Puritan said, outside of Christ, listen to me, God is terrible. Outside of Christ, God is terrible. We will, the justice of God for every sin we commit will fall on us. 
if we don't flee to Christ by faith and hide in him. It fell on him in our place. Let us flee to him. Um, Jesus is the perfect incarnation, the perfect enfleshment of the principle that Abraham exemplifies, the righteous effect deliverance for the entire community. Jesus effected deliverance for any person. His arms are wide outstretched for any person who comes to him by faith to flee from the just wrath of God. He effects deliverance for you himself, right? By stepping in between us and God and interceding for us with his life in his death. Um, so how can that play out as I close in our lives? How can this intercession, as we move from Abram's intercession to Jesus' intercession to our intercession? So we're called to join Christ in his intercession. He intercedes for us, Romans 8, 34, and he calls us to intercede for the lost, right? Um, to intercede for our neighbors in this, our wicked city and country that God loves and he gave his son to save and to restore. I just want to enjoin you, and as I'm enjoining you, I want to enjoin myself. Let us pray persistently for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers, for those in this geography, as Nathaniel did in leading us in prayer earlier, that God has called us to, for this wonderful wicked city that God loves, and for this nation, and for this world. So, um, how? Very briefly as I wrap, number one, this might shock you, and I'm going to get into this a lot more next week, because what's next? What's our text next week, if you've read ahead? God rescues Lot, and he rescues him from the destruction of, he rescues him from fire, from on high, from judgment from the destruction of an entire city of the wicked, right? So we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but this is, a, this is a primer. Number one, how can we be intercessors for those around us? Live like hell is real. Live like judgment is coming because, friends, look at me, it is coming. And Jesus, live like hell is real, and Jesus endured it for sinners like the neighbors on your street, the coworkers in your office. I want you to get your faces in, in your head. The Trader Joe's cashier ringing you up. The kids in your school. Seth, you realize just because you go to a private Christian school, not everybody, you know this, not everybody's a believer. Probably most are not, right? Folks in your apartment complexes, on the edges of your neighborhoods, right across, or in your apartment complex, right across Hillcroft, up and down Westheimer and Richmond. This is from a Ryan Kwan sermon preached November 2022 at the, the Acts 29, we're part of an Acts 29 network at the A29 National Conference in Denver. I, I heard him, and it was a wonderful, it was the best sermon preached that weekend. He quotes Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher in uh, lectures to my students. Spurgeon, short quote, says this, meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. You know what we like to do? The opposite of that. We like to push that reality out of our heads and pretend like hell isn't real. He says, Meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. And like Abraham, when you get up early to go to that place where you commune with God, cast an eye towards Sodom and see the smoke thereof going up like the smoke of a furnace. Shun all views of future punishment, which would make it appear less terrible. Or so to take the edge, take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortals from their quenchless flame. There will be much, much more next week, friends, there. Um, 
I want to I just encourage us to do a few things, and we'll get, we'll get more of this application next week too. I want to ask you in this month of fasting of February, where we're fasting with Christians around the city to see God, to beg God to be, as we hunger in our stomachs, to hunger for him in our hearts and in our minds and in our bodies and our spirits, to ask him to revive us. Revive means, revive kind of takes for granted that even as a believer, we tend, our tendency in our flesh is to kind of fall asleep, just sort of drift away from God, right? For those of you that are falling asleep right now, right? I saw some eyes go, he's calling me out. Um, We're asking God for personal, church-wide, and city-wide revival, right? As we do that, I want to, I want, we don't just want this to be like a, oh, in February we do that. We have one week left, even less a week, because February is a short month. I think leap year makes it, what, till Thursday this, this week? So encourage you, one, this week, even if you haven't done anything, it's not about what we do. That we're, we're saved through the work of Jesus Christ alone, but our response in, in hungering after God and interceding for the lost can be, Lord, revive me, save with a mighty hand, fast for a day. Okay, so commit to fasting one day per month, maybe fast one day this last week of February, but moving into March and beyond, I want you to consider fasting one day per month with special focus on praying for the lost in your life and in our community. Can you consider doing that? Don't promise me, don't promise God, but think about committing one day a month to fasting. And maybe you end it at dinner time when you sit down, if you have a family that you sit down with, if you sit down with your church family to a meal, fine. Fast breakfast and lunch. Maybe fast 24 hours. As you hunger, it's unavoidable to hunger after God. And spend that time, instead of just being hungry and trying to get through your work, like spend some time actually where you would be eating. Get on your knees, open your Bible up, pray through a psalm, cry out to God. It doesn't have to take long. Number two, prayer walk your neighborhood one morning or evening each week. Just commit to one prayer walk in the place you live in. It could be an apartment complex. It might be a neighborhood. Prayer walk it. I'm just talking just down your street and back or your block or you could go more. Just one time a week, commit to praying for your neighbors. I made sure to do it this morning because my hypocrisy, it knows a few, it knows some bounds, you know. It, it only goes so far, to quote Doc Holliday in, uh, in uh, Tombstone, right? My hypocrisy goes only so far. Um, so before asking you to do it, I wanted to do it again. It's been a while, honestly, friends. I forgot some of their, I don't know all their names. I don't know all the names of everybody on my street. Commit to one one time a week, either morning or evening, where, and you just go on a walk with your family if you have a family, but just pray. Pray for your neighbors. Thirdly, commit to your blessed 30. If you're not in a D group, we'd love to get you in one, and part of our discipleship group is we, we don't just get into the word and pray uh, and confess sin. We also have a list of folks that we're praying for that are in our lives that are far from God. Get a multiply book in the back if you don't have one. Get into a D group. We'd love to help you do that. And begin to make a list of those 30. I've had that list for a long time. I lost it for a while. I found it again. Uh, pray for those people. Pray for It's 30 for a reason. Pray for one a day. Just pray. Commit to praying for the lost in your lives. And then when we gather in our D groups, in our parishes, in our Sunday worship, and in our monthly prayer meetings, let us pray for the lost every time we're together. Jude 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Um, I want to ask you fourthly and finally to join us Friday, April 5th, for dinner and worship at the new Neighborhood Impact Community Center. It's a boxing gym. 
but they've just gotten it, and so we're going we're gonna to have access to it for community outreach, and we're going to have a monthly, God willing, worship service, and they're going to ask us to help to really lead our church, to lead the first one. That's April 5th, Friday. It's going to be dinner. It's going to be worship. Um, I want to ask you to consider coming to that. Mark it on your calendar. Excited to see what God might do. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, as I, as I wrap, 500 years ago he lived, and he was, he was a German, and he... Uh, he famously said over and over again that the source of his great strength and productivity and boldness for the Lord and what God did through him. He's like, it wasn't me, man. I just reached up and, my, and there was a rope in my hand and I pulled it and there was a bell that clanged and that bell was the Reformation. And he said, famously, he said, when I'm, I pray three, at least three hours a day and when I'm really busy and I'm really, I have all this weight, the weight of the world on my shoulders, I pray even longer because I need that power. And that's, that was the source of his strength. Um, a friend once overheard him. He prayed to God as both immovable, almighty, potentate, and tender father who is mightily moved by his children's petitions. So that's Abraham and his prayers. That's Luther and his prayers. What about us? What about us? Let's persevere in our prayers. Let's keep coming back to God over and over again for ourselves, for the lost. Let's pray with humility, reverence, but also boldly and cleverly and reasonably like Abraham did. And most importantly, holding God's character up to him, remembering that he is both just and merciful because of he's able to be both just and merciful, to show we who deserve mercy, to show us, uh, we who deserve justice, excuse me, to show us mercy because he gave justice to Jesus Christ. Let us press into the fact that when Jesus on the cross shows us the very heart of God, that is the essence, the hot core of who he is. Let us Pray that for other people. Let us understand that is the heart of God as we pray to him ourselves. And let us push in our words and our prayers others toward that as the essence of who God is. He loves to show mercy and he's able to because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The righteous effect deliverance for the entire community. Just like that man who stepped up and gave his life to save all those POW uh, prisoners who were building that railroad during World War II, he saved their lives because of his righteousness. So has Jesus for us, and so let us, in, with Jesus in us, because we have been saved, let us intercede for those who are heading to hell and whom God died for and loves. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this uh, word. It's always longer than I intend for it to be or want it to be, but Lord, your word is so good, and your spirit, as we learned about um, in Sunday school this morning with the children, Lord, your spirit, it, who's fully God, um, is able to and does indeed take all the benefits of Christ and Christ himself and place him. Give the benefits to Jesus uh, of Jesus to us when we trust in him and put Jesus in his very spirit in our hearts, Lord. And that is available to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So I pray this morning that you would remind us of this. I pray this morning that if someone is here and doesn't know you personally and needs, we all need forgiveness and cleansing, but they need to know you for the first time, they would run to you. We would run to you for the millionth time, for the thousandth time, and uh, plead on our full rights as children through the full rights of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, Lord, um, and make us intercessors like Abraham with Christ the intercessor in us who is indeed inter interceding even now for us. Um, so would you do that, Lord? Would you help us? And uh, would you help us to be a people of intercession and prayer and to come to you boldly in Jesus' name? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.